0: Outstanding with authority, praise the Lord, it's good stuff, wonderful to have them with us today. Folks, if you would please turn to uh, Luke chapter 9, we'll be around verse 12, Uh, also keep a finger in John chapter 6, actually we're going to be all over the Gospels today and you'll see why in a moment. As we departed last week, you probably remember the 12 disciples whom Luke now refers to as apostles. Uh, we're returning from their mission. They're going to provide an account to Jesus for all that they had done when they have been out on that mission. Uh, this occurs in the oft-mentioned city now of Capernaum, which we've seen over and over again. It has become Jesus' adopted hometown. And with the notoriety uh, that Jesus now has and that of his apostles, the crowds just keep growing bigger and bigger. They're ginormous at this point. Therefore, it's no surprise that in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus attempts to withdraw, along with his disciples, for for an opportunity to rest, a a remote location called Bethsaida. Mark chapter 6 says they do so to eat, to gain rest. Uh, Bethsaida is described in scripture as a desolate place, uh, secluded even. I have a map here uh, for you. The exact location is disputed, but if this map is accurate, um, Bethsaida lies about three miles northeast of Capernaum. Archaeologists find only scattered remains of a small number of homes uh, there. Jesus' disciple named Philip, he was a native of Bethsaida. Uh, there, There was a town there, there was no commercially commercially developed city however primarily there were rolling hills and and rolling mountains grassy meadows this second photo probably closely resembles the terrain you can probably see uh, the Sea of Galilee in the background there far and away this is the terrain that they encountered on this occasion we're going to look at Uh, becomes a setting for what is considered by many to be the most notorious Miracle of Christ, performed by Christ. It's the only miracle, by the way, uh, short of the resurrection, that is recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of 5,000 men. With women and children, the crowd probably was between ten and 20,000 people. And this is a crucial period in Jesus' ministry. As we have discussed, He has offered the kingdom repeatedly. Now even combined with the preaching of His disciples. Offering the kingdom over and over again to Israel. Certainly a person would think that a miracle of this magnitude would cause Israel to believe. Especially concerning or considering that this is exactly the type of scene prophesied through Ezekiel as God promised a full restoration to the nation, to Israel. Let me reread just a portion of our scripture reading from Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 13, where God says to Israel, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. And then in verse 23, Then I will set over them one shepherd, My servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Wow. Wow. This imagery is exactly what God told Israel to expect. Ponder that just for a moment as I transition to read to you from John chapter 6 this scene of the feeding of the 5,000 as it is recorded by the Apostle John. In John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, the Apostle writes, After these things Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Interesting that he asked Philip, right? The native of Bethsaida. Where's the Walmart around here, Philip? There ain't one. No place to buy that amount of bread. And Jesus continues, or the Gospel of John continues saying that Jesus was saying this to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's, Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So surely, if a miracle is the prerequisite for people to accept Christ as Savior, everyone in this place would have become genuine believers in Jesus. If that were so, this would become the scene of a great spiritual triumph in Israel. But if a miracle like this, one of this magnitude, doesn't motivate these people to believe in Jesus, well then this scene just becomes the greatest of all tragedies for the nation of Israel. Which one Will it be? This is an important, actually crucial question to answer, folks. Because the charismatic churches, we've said on numerous occasions going through this gospel, they regularly insist you have to show people signs so that they can observe something visible so that they can believe. That's a claim that's always made. Well, this group responds. They respond. But what is... Vital is to see how they respond. Because the Gospel of John indicates that the crowds perceiving that Jesus is the prophet, they want to seize him now. They want to forcibly install him as their king. Now think about that just for a moment. Here we have a scene with with about 5,000 men. That would be a sizable guerrilla force if somebody wanted to, to cast off the Roman rule. Somebody wanted to mount a revolution. Jesus recoils at that thought, folks. He recoils. As he told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. After John the Baptist's arrest, Jesus told the crowds in Matthew 11, verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. A better rendering of that, or a better understanding, might be that violent men are attempting to take it by force. To forcibly install the kingdom. Whatever Jesus meant by that, one thing is crystal clear. His kingdom is not going to come. It's not going to be installed through some sort of human uh, uh, revolution. Some violent revolution by men. Christ's followers are those who, according to Romans 13 verse 1, are respectable. They don't cause any rebellion against government. For rebellion against government is rebellion against God Himself. This is why you don't see genuine Christians you know, bombing abortion clinics or, or throwing rocks at police or, or um, threatening politicians, whatever their background or political affiliation might be, ever. That's not what Christians do. Knowing that our battles are spiritual and not physical, we pray, we ask God to, to open the doors to the gospel, to open hearts so that people might respond to change hearts. The kingdom of God cannot be advanced through violence. It can't be. So even before I begin, I'd like you to um, be forewarned, be aware that this this miracle and and the aftermath of this miracle, it doesn't turn out very good. It doesn't end well. We don't end up with a big old country revival is what I'm about to say. After the 5,000 are fed. In fact, this miracle ends up being the catalyst to the greatest defection of Christ's disciples this side of the cross. Great defection of disciples. Kind of puts a fork in the social media gospel, or social gospel, excuse me, that insists if you just feed people's stomachs, if you just give them something to eat or or meet whatever other social need that they might feel, that, that, you know, they'll just naturally then become docile that they'll be open to the gospel and there will just be peace and goodwill on earth. That's such a falsity, folks. That you need to meet people's felt needs before they can be open to a spiritual conversation and the gospel. The felt need is not where Jesus begins on the side of this mountain. Though scripture reveals later the bulk of this crowd abandons Jesus, even after experiencing the greatest of miracles, it's vital to recognize how Jesus initiates or engages this crowd. How he engages these people following him. In Mark 6, verse 33, the people saw them going. That means when Jesus and his disciples got in the boat to go over to Bethsaida, the people saw them going. And many recognized them. Hey, that's Peter's boat. That's Jesus. And and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Jesus and the twelve left in boats. Thousands were following to Bethsaida along the shoreline, navigating the mountains and the shore. And in verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion on them because they were, well, they were like sheep without a shepherd. So there were probably more than 10,000 people migrating along the hills and the shoreline with nowhere else to turn for the Word of God. Nowhere else to go. People with nowhere to go. There had been a famine in the land. Much like the prophet Amos declared in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, which said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. That's the famine. The people here had been starved. They are starving. The teacher of that day, the teachers of that day, the Pharisees, the scribes, they didn't straight up teach the word of God to people. They extrapolated the law, the the Pharisees reinforced their traditions. This deeply saddens me. In fact, I nearly teared up this week looking at this. And it's partially conjecture, but it is conjecture based on known facts about the history of Israel. I believe part of the reason that the people of Israel, these crowds, didn't recognize the scene The picture of the hills, the the shepherd coming to feed them, the shepherd prince. The reason they didn't recognize him in Ezekiel 34 is probably because a majority of them had never heard the prophecies of Ezekiel 34 being read to them in their very own synagogue. They weren't shepherded. They They didn't know what to expect. Christ gazed at them and he concluded... These people, they're wandering like like folks without a shepherd. The common Israelite didn't have seven copies of the Bible on their shelf at home. Scribes weren't teaching them the Scriptures in their synagogues. The people are meandering along the shore, failed by the religious leaders of their day, hoping that someone, that this Jesus could could give them some hope in understanding what in the world this life is all about. Trying to make some sense out of life. No doubt some were motivated by the prospect of healing, but many others were just hopeless in that hand that life had dealt them. Folks, that's what we're encountering as we go out to Port St. Lucie. People that are just hopeless in the hand that's been dealt to them, not understanding how sin has contaminated the race, the human race, and they don't know where to go. Nowhere to turn. Jesus had compassion on them. People like this. When Jesus observes no one is shepherding these people, was he, was he suggesting when he... When that is noted that, that they just needed some miraculous healings. Maybe they just need to be healed. Maybe that's what shepherding's all about, just healing people. No. Did Jesus conclude that they just needed they just need some bread? That, that's what they really need is some bread. No. Jesus determined that they needed to understand theology, they needed to know about God. They needed to know God. They needed to hear the Word about God. The duty of any spiritual shepherd is to feed the flock the Word of God. That's the duty. And these crowds who were starving were starving because of the wayward shepherds of their day. The ones who weren't feeding them the Word of God. Jeremiah 23 verse 1 pronounces this judgment. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to tend to you for the evil of your deeds, says the Lord. For shepherds today, who give no heed to the reading, or the teaching, or the exhortation of Scripture, but, but instead serve up a platter of, of man-centered philosophy. How to fix your life right now. That God, all He requires of you is you just give your 10% to the church, and then He's just going to, that's going to unleash God's power to just bless your socks off. To people who are preaching that, God says, woe to you. Woe. But a day is coming, Jeremiah 23, verse 3, when God says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. Out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply, I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Speaking of that day, listen to this promise of Jeremiah 3 verse 15. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Theology. Knowledge and understanding of God. That's what the flock gets fed with. The nourishment of God's flock, it's knowledge and understanding of God. Knowledge and understanding of man. The sinfulness of man. If you remember previous to the birth of John the Baptist, There had been a famine in the land. God hadn't spoke through the prophets for 400 years. Combine that with the fact that the scribes, the Pharisees, they didn't faithfully discharge their office. They didn't teach Holy Scripture. The result was that Israel was famished, and Jesus is here to bring an end to that famine. That's what He's to do here on this hill near Bethsaida. So when it says in Mark 6, verse 34, that Jesus felt compassion on them, he wasn't immediately concerned or foremost concerned with physical hunger. Not with physical hunger. That, that Greek word, felt, compassion, splant, which we've encountered now repeated times in Luke, it's here again. Which, which means Jesus deeply felt from his innermost bowels. That deep compassion, that spontaneity is followed by this reaction by Jesus. And he began to teach them many things. That's what Jesus did. The Greek word for many implies a a great amount, a lot of things. Jesus feeds them extensively on this scene before the feeding of the 5,000, teaching them long before their stomachs ever were filled. Taught them many things. In fact, it is the disciples later, later in the evening, who elevate this concern for bread. They bring that to the attention, the food, even though John assures us that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, what he's intending to do from the beginning. Matthew 14, verse 15 says When it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. Getting late in the day now. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So does Jesus suggest that you have to meet their felt need first before you can preach the Word of God to them? No. No, Jesus preaches first before He feeds them. He preached to them first. In fact, at the feeding of the 4,000 which comes shortly after this. At the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus preaches for three days before He gives them anything to eat. Three days, no food, and He preaches to them. And He fed them, Mark 8, verse 3 says, because He feared they might faint on the way home. Now folks, that's the kind of pastor's conference we need. Instead of three days of just feasting and sitting back like fat cats, just preaching the Word of God for three days. Pastors can do their registration online and, and they'll ask you, or you can send in the request, hey, uh, do I need a meal ticket? No. No, you won't need a meal ticket. We might give you something on the last day to make sure you don't faint on the drive home. At the Union Gospel Mission in Fort Worth, Texas, they've got fine facilities for feeding the homeless. Fine facilities. Great, great work going on there. But they don't get to eat until the homeless have sat through a sermon with an invitation that you trust in Christ as your Savior. It is only after that that you get to go through the door on the left that goes into the cafeteria where they feed them after they have heard the Word of God. There's no eternal value in feeding or, or clothing or um, even entertaining your youth if the Word of God isn't being preached? What is the point? People will just become hungry again. Christians aren't primarily... Actually, we aren't on a humanitarian crusade. That's not what we're on. We are on a spiritual crusade. We are engaged in a spiritual crusade crusade. We are inviting people into Christ's kingdom. That's what we do. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 11, it indicates, once again, repeated scene, shouldn't be any surprise to us by now, right? Jesus was speaking to this crowd about the kingdom of God. That's what he was teaching them about was the kingdom of God. Until you recognize that your sin has separated you from God... Until you you understand that Christ came into the world, not to just make your life a little easier, but to save you by suffering and dying for your sins on the cross until you believe that he rose from the dead, there's no amount of bread that can do anything for you. It won't benefit. All the fish you can eat won't be of any benefit. It's always the gospel first. Always the gospel first. Alleviating suffering comes along the way. That's always second. Meeting the felt needs can never be allowed to usurp the priority of preaching the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't allow that to happen. Because if you serve bread, and you serve fish, and you serve up a big meal, and everyone gets their belly satisfied. If you do that first, here's what will happen. When you finally get around to teaching the truth about Christ, about sin and redemption, the people are just going to, if they've already eaten, they're just going to push back from their table. They're going to leave. They've already had their belly filled. They'll also demand if you make feeding the hungry the focus of your ministry, they'll demand that you maintain it and keep it the focus of your ministry. They'll demand that. Don't believe me? Return with me to John chapter 6. I'm going to pick up this scene. This is immediately now after feeding the 5,000. Jesus has dismissed his disciples. He slips away from the crowds who wanted to seize him. In the meantime, the disciples get in the boat and sail away by themselves. This, This is a scene where Jesus walks on water and gets into the boat with them, and they land right back at Capernaum. That's what's going on overnight here, on this night. And they see Jesus walking on the sea, climbs in the boat. They're immediately at the shore, we're told. And this crowd, once again, pursues Jesus. So this is on the next day. They're again pursuing him from Bethsaida, back to Capernaum. And in John chapter 6, verse 25, we read, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, meaning in Capernaum, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? He walked across the water. How, how do you get over here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, Jesus says, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Jesus says, the only reason that you are looking for me is because your bellies were filled. He says, truly, truly. Listen to this. They sought Jesus only because their bellies became empty, again and they wanted to alter Christ's focus of his ministry Uh, they responded but due to their own selfish motive and in verse 28 therefore they said to Jesus what shall we do so that we may work the works of God Jesus answered and said to them this is the work of God whose work is it the work of God That you believe in him whom God has sent. That's what Jesus said you need to do. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? He just fed 5,000. But what do you do for a sign for us? You won't believe the sign that they demand from Jesus at this point. This this in itself is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. In verse 31 they tell Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. It is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Their demand isn't only for more bread. Their demand is perpetual bread that they don't have to labor for. They're spiritually dead folks. They don't get it at all. And filling their stomachs hadn't changed a thing. They just became hungry again the next day. They demand that Jesus now perpetually give them what they want. The late Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost of Dallas Seminary writes this about this miracle in his book, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ. He says, Christ was offering Himself as King And as such, he would bestow bountiful spiritual blessing on his people. But it was not the promise of spiritual blessing for which this multitude hungered. Rather, they wanted the physical and material blessings that Messiah could confer on them. They desired to eat his bread without laboring for it. They considered the material blessings more beneficial to them than the spiritual blessings he had come to confer on them. Their desire for more bread revealed that they considered the satisfaction of the flesh the highest goal in life. Unquote. Satisfying the flesh, the highest goal. Just like their unbelieving forefathers, this generation would rather perish in the wilderness, eating manna every day, Than to enter the promised land through faith. Theirs is the same false view of Christ. That is being supplied by false teachers. Across the nation. Around the world. Suggesting to people. That Jesus only came to make your bellies full. To, To satisfy your flesh. With food and cars. And fine clothes. And jewelry. And brokerage accounts. Things which don't lead into the promised land. They appeal to the flesh. There are things that are unrepentant materialism that paves the broad road that goes to hell. The prosperity gospel, folks, that Christ came so that you could perpetually have your bellies filled. It's not the gospel. It is another gospel. It is a False gospel. Christ didn't come to do that. There's evidence in the text as we move on. My time is evaporating, I see. What then is Jesus' response to their cry for more bread? John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Spiritual condition of this crowd, dead. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all those he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. And they're not it. They don't believe. In verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Listen to this. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. They're demanding the same outcome that their fathers, unbelieving fathers in the wilderness enjoyed. Can you believe that? Talk about total depravity. You know, everyone here, if you have the opportunity, you should return to, to uh, John chapter 6 and read through the whole thing in context. Some of these are select passages I, I, I'm pulling here. Um, you'll find the context as you look at it of Jesus speaking. It's just a colossal tragedy, this whole thing. He just... Fed five thousand men, plus women and children. Just spiritual deadness surrounds him. No revival in the best side of wilderness at all. Verse 53 So Jesus said to those demanding more bread. Truly, truly, again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Verse fifty nine. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard, said this: This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? That is a difficult statement, especially if you're spiritually blind and deaf and dumb, and dead. Jesus went on to say this, There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you, no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Salvation doesn't hinge upon how much bread is served up. The Father has to draw them and the tragic result of the feeding of the 5,000, it's, it's epitomized in their response. This is verse 66. I always remember this one because it's John 6, verse 66. Can I always find this one easy? John six six six. Not a good thing. It says, as a result of this many, mean, meaning again, a multitude. As a result of this, a multitude of Jesus' disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. Tragic. They couldn't get the point that they didn't need a Messiah who could provide them perpetual bread. They could provide bread themselves. Who here isn't providing bread through the work of their hands as it is? They had they could get bread. They didn't need Jesus to bring them bread. What they couldn't provide for themselves was the bread of eternal life. That they could not provide, eternal life or salvation. Christ said that He would provide that spiritual food. He would provide that by offering His body and His blood on the cross. That is the bread of eternal life. You know, when it comes to the feeding of 5,000, people want to gravitate. They want to go right to the miracle. Let's just focus on the miracle. You know, I've, I've heard preachers say that, that this miracle, what it teaches, what this feeding of the 5,000 teaches is that, that, that Jesus just can perpetually supply to you whatever you want. One church I visited not long ago suggested this story is all about the little boy. It's about the little boy with the loaves and the fish. And, and how by offering his personal lunch... It was said, uh, Jesus was then empowered to feed everyone. They use that as a convenient transition as as to how people ought to be given even their own lunch money to the church with a guarantee that God will multiply it back to them. That interpretation of the 5,000 is a tragedy, folks. That is a tragedy. A better summary of this miracle is a picture of people whose religion is merely satisfying the flesh, when their tap eventually dries up, when the benefit goes away and the ongoing supply, the dividends dry up, they will increasingly become disillusioned and disenfranchised and ultimately will end up walking away from Christ. That's what happened here. That's what happened here. The people didn't get unlimited returns. God didn't multiply them everything that they wanted. Jesus didn't give them an open spigot for whatever they wanted through the feeding of the 5,000. It was a one-time deal. When they demanded more, he said, no. They said, no. But this miracle, it's not all for loss. There are some triumphs here. First off, the preaching of the truth that Jesus didn't come to provide for every physical desire in this life, that news, it thins out the crowd significantly. That's actually a good thing. It it should relieve at least some of the pressure and the stress uh, of the ministry with all of these people now following them uh, that are not following them as as the crowd disperses. I couldn't think of a more disheartening ministry, discouraging ministry for a pastor then trying to maintain a large crowd filled with people who believe that Jesus is some kind of tooth fairy. That he just will come through whenever they want. I can't, I can't imagine what that would be like to try to maintain a charade and, and to continuously juggle that idea and keep that fantasy alive. So, so thinning out this crowd for Jesus becomes one of the triumphs in this passage. Since their motive was wrong, Jesus didn't hesitate to run them off. Or allow them to run off, perhaps better. Secondly, as dissatisfied people defect, what does it do to those who are left standing there? They're going to have to decide where they stand, right? you got people leaving, the masses of people dispersing, and a multitude of those who once proudly called themselves Jesus followers, quote-unquote Jesus followers, they're turning away to leave. It forces those who remain to decide whether they're going to stand. They need to determine whether they're going to leave as well. And if you don't stand with Jesus, where could you possibly go? That, that's the next crucial question. And Jesus said to the twelve, well, you don't want to go away also, do you? Your translation probably phrases that as a question, as if Jesus is anxious about their answer, but He's not. He's not. John 6.64 assures us Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him the question by Jesus is for the benefit of the twelve those who were listening on those who were staying some of the women others who would continue with them in the ministry they are now going to be obligated to respond to that question so Simon Peter answered him Lord to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where would you possibly go? There's nowhere else to go. That's still all fallout from feeding to the 5,000. And the, and the mass defection by these disciples of Christ sets a scene for our next passage in Luke 9, verse 18. Coincidentally, in Luke ends up being... Peter's confession of the Christ. Perhaps the greatest triumph of this miracle, as this all plays out, and we watched it play out before our eyes, is that it ultimately separates those who only want to have their belly filled from those who will sacrifice their lives for the kingdom of God. In fact, a call to exacting discipleship is Jesus' reply to Peter's confession as he says, take up your cross and follow me. For those who stick around, that's the command. Does the feeding of the 5,000, as we close, um, does that demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ? Sure. That's a fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. It was the, it was the excuse me, better word would be, that is the offer. Of Ezekiel 34. Didn't fulfill it. Because they rejected him. That offer will come again later to Israel. Does the miracle show. That Jesus can transform a lot out of a little. Oh yeah. The resources we have. All we have is what we have. Can Jesus take what we have. And make big things out of it. Certainly he can. Certainly he can. He can accomplish enormous spiritual feats. With our seemingly little. Is there symbolism in the five loaves and the two fish and the twelve baskets? I don't know. I don't know. That's not what we focus on. That's not what we're asked to be focused on. Does this miracle say that Jesus is going to supply anything you want anytime that you want? No. No. The point is identifying who are going to stick around and confess Jesus as the Christ who is really going to sacrifice their lives for Christ versus those who are just hanging around because as long as they hang around, they think they're going to get something more to eat. Perpetual blessing. To those types, Jesus says, you know, you can leave. You can leave. In the greater scheme of things, Jesus says the physical bread is not really all that important but securing more bread, more money, that's normally what people are always focused on. More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, our sinful condition is so deceptive, Lord. As we want to make you into a savior of our own crafting, one that, uh, Lord, we can pull the strings. That we can make do what we want, Lord, rather than the God of the universe. And Lord, as we look at this gospel of Luke and marvel at uh, the wonderful miracles that you have done, no doubt you are the Christ. And as Peter will profess and confess, uh, you're the son of the living God. Lord, there's no one else like you. Yet Let us not err, Lord, in, in thinking that you just came here. To give us what we want. Lord save us from that misunderstanding. Bless this congregation with faith. Lord that they might believe that you are are the the king. The king who rose from the dead and defeated sin. Lord that they would trust in you as their only savior. And that they Lord would come into the kingdom which you are offering today. Lord thank you for that. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.